Uh, let's do an icebreaker. Uh, truth or false? I'll give you three sta statements, and you tell me, is it true or false? Um, I've been in a tribal war before. True or false? Raise your hand. Think it's true? False? Okay. True. Uh, I've been in an airplane crash and survived. True or false? True? False? It's true. Um, I'm a hip-hop, rap, music producer in Indonesia. True or false? True also. <laughs> so, in 1977, my wife and I went to the jungles of Irian Jaya, now called Papua, went into one of the most remote places on the face of the earth, uh, invested our lives with a group of people, incarnationally using Philippians chapter 2 as our modus operandi. Become, my wife would go off to the jungle with the women harvesting food. I'd go hunting wild boar in the jungle. And God helped us find this language quickly. Uh, and after about three years, we're pretty fluent, uh, talking about the gospel, people are understanding, but no one's accepting. And then a breakthrough happened. And this is how it happened. Hot day in the jungle, sun was in the noon sky. Uh, from our hut, we heard the death wail, the crying for the dead. And I jumped down, because our, our hut is two meters up off the ground on round poles, bark floor, thatch roof. I jumped to the ground, ran the direction I heard the crying, about half an hour en route till I came out at the riverbank. And there's a thousand people there. The women are throwing themselves into the mud the way they mourn the death of someone. The men are all in the shallow water looking for something. I asked the guy next to me, what happened? And he said, Jim, early morning, a family got in their canoe and went off to the jungle to forage for food. When they came back, they beached their canoe and took their packs of food up to their hut. They left a little two-year-old boy in the canoe to wait for them. When they came back to get their son, he wasn't there. He'd tried to stand up in the canoe and had fallen over into the river. And the water in our river is inky black in color because of algae that grows in it. You put your hand a few centimeters under the water, it disappears. So they'd been hunting and could not find the boy. Finally, one man came up out of the water, and he had the body of the boy in his arms. The stomach is swollen from water inhalation. He's not breathing. He's dead. They bring the body up on high ground, lay it on a banana leaf. Everybody comes around mourning berserk with grief. My wife came on the scene, and because she knew the technique of mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, she knelt down, tried to revive this boy. For five minutes, for 10 minutes, for 20 minutes, she kept working. Finally, she realized he's been in the water too long. He's really dead. She stopped, and she started to pray. I'm over here, and I stand up and start to vocalize a prayer that I'd never prayed in my life. I never even had thought about it, because there's a gift of faith that God gives. It's not a faith that we possess. It's a faith that God imparts at a point in time when he wants to do something. And just spontaneously, I started praying, God, even though these people don't acknowledge you as their Lord and Savior, please, as a sign of your love and mercy, allow this little boy to live again. All of a sudden, out of that mouth, the little boy came spewing all the water at one time. He started breathing shallow, breathing big. His eyes opened. He's alive again. <laughs> Parents grabbed him up, and they shouted. There was a shouting, a thousand people shouting a roar for about 20 minutes. Finally, I quieted him down. I said, what we've just now seen, this isn't anything that I did or that my wife did. This is the God we've come to tell you about. It's a sign of his love. One week after that, we were invited to one village to preach and teach about the way of salvation all week long, morning till night, every day. At the end of the week, the first people started believing on Jesus. Not one, two, three, but 
10, 20, 30, whole family groups, like out of the book of Acts, every week, wave after wave, till eventually 80% of this tribe became born-again believers. We gave 20 years of our life there. Uh, my daughter, three daughters, born and raised in the jungle. Uh, we did a Bible translation, raised up leaders, planted churches, and after 20 years, we're done. We say, God, where's the next tribe? And I was surprised when God said, Jim, the most unreached tribe now is the younger generation. You're losing a whole generation. They're all flooding to the coastline from their interior villages, looking for jobs, looking for education in the cities that are emerging. And they're getting lost in the city. Introduced to alcohol for the first time, all the modern drugs of the, of the world are in our island, and HIV AIDS is the highest in Papua than any place in Indonesia. Uh, 44% of all AIDS cases in Indonesia are in Papua. I bury a young person once a month from uh, AIDS. So we moved to the city to do church for problem young people. A lot of churches know what to do with clean-cut, tidy young people. They don't know what to do with broken young people. And the majority of young people around the world today are broken. Uh, I believe that the church that's going to finish off the Great Commission is the church that knows how to restore broken young people. And so we started with a group of drunks, a gang of 12 drunks off the street. We brought them into our home. That's our first church. I figured if Jesus can begin with 12 delinquents, I can begin with 12 delinquents. And they fell in love with Jesus, stopped drinking, uh, got their lives together. And I tried to put them in local churches for ongoing discipleship. Didn't work because they didn't know the language of the church. They didn't know the culture of the church. So we had to start a new church. Uh, we call it the Problem People Christian Church. <laughs> and it started with drunks and then drug addicts and drug dealers and then prostitutes, then gang members, uh, then HIV AIDS patients, jail inmates, and now problem families. Our whole church is problem people. Uh, in reality, we're all problem people. It's just some of us are better at hiding it than others. So we just have a we, we, all, we have an anthem. We all stand up, and I lead it. We'll raise our hands. We're all problem people on a new road to God. So we try to make an atmosphere where people feel welcome. And it grew uh, until people said, Jim, you got the biggest church in Papua, maybe. But then something happened around 18 years ago that changed my life forever. When on the west coast of Sumatra, at 8 in the morning on 26th of December, plates under the water opened up and sucked all the water off the shoreline. All the beaches are dry, and all this free fish is ready to be gathered, and all these kids come out of their villages to get the free fish. But then the plates came back together, and the first wave of the tsunami came on land. The tsunami in Aceh was three waves. The first one was dark, uh, hot, like a volcanic eruption under the water, and took off all those villages. Then there was a second wave. There was a third wave. The third wave of the tsunami was 30 meters high, and total devastation until 250,000 people perished. I'm on the other end of Indonesia when this happened, 3,000 kilometers away. And, but like you, we were watching on television, one day, two days, three days. No aid is getting into these poor people because all the roads have been severed. Part of the terminal is caved in. And on the third day of the tsunami, I was out running in the morning. Every morning, I run uh, for an hour, 10K, and pray. And as I'm running, God says, Jim, go to Aceh. Okay, I go back home and gather my family. I said, God wants us to go to Aceh. And they said, okay, let's go. 
So we gathered up a team and we got on the plane and we landed Banda Aceh the night of the third day after the tsunami and the first commercial aircraft allowed to land. Miracle. As I came down the plank to the tarmac, I could still smell the stench of rotting bodies everywhere because no cleanup has gone on. This modern city of Banda Aceh has been swept out to the ocean like with a broom. It's gone. And I realized a quarter of a million people have just perished. And guys, all of a sudden, this success in Papua doesn't look very successful compared to the vast need in Western Indonesia. Really bothered me. I went back to Papua. A few weeks later, I'm on my motorcycle. I just drive a motorcycle till today. I don't drive a car, just a motorcycle. And I was out on my bike, and a vehicle was coming down the other, speeding down the road, didn't see me, plowed into me, took my bike many meters down the road, and I went flying through the air with the Lord. And as I came down and kissed the asphalt, my shoulder cracked in two places. This side's a different shape than this side now, but I survived. But I asked God, how many of these can I survive? How much more time do I have on earth? And I promised God that day, I will not be satisfied with the remaining time I have on earth. I won't be satisfied with a few growing churches. Can I see a movement happen from one end of the country to the other before I leave this earth? So I gathered 12 young leaders from youth ministry network that we had from across the country. They're considered successful. They can gather thousands of young people in church services, but they're frustrated. Is that all it is? Just rah-rah in church services? There's got to be more. So we went out to the jungle for three days to pray and dream. And at the end of three days, we covenanted together to find a new model. Is there maybe a different way Jesus did it? So we went back to see how did Jesus plant churches? And so we get one value and we go practice across the country for three months, come back, hold each other accountable, get another value, practice for three months. After a year, they're starting to see things they never imagined. After two years, it starts being momentum that can't be stopped. And now after 18 years, incredible things have happened. But there's one thing I want to share today, the one value. And it really comes from Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. I'll just story tell it. Jesus is going down the road, and he passes Matthew at his tax collecting booth, because Matthew is part of the tax mafia. And Jesus just says two words to Matthew, follow me. Matthew leaves everything and follows Jesus. And immediately Jesus goes to his house, to have a party. Jesus likes to party. Too many of our movies about Jesus have him really serious. I think Jesus liked to eat with people. A lot of his parables are about eating. So Jesus goes there to eat with the tax collectors and the sinners. Why? Because he's more interested in the group than the individual. The individual is access into the group because he wants to plant a church amongst this group. But the Pharisees see this and they complain, Jesus, how come you're hanging out with the wrong crowd? And Jesus says, this is my kind of people. It's the sick people that need a doctor, not the healthy people. I've come to seek and to save the lost. But the next day, another group of people come and complain. The second group, they're better than the Pharisees. These are John the Baptist's disciples. They complain too. They ask Jesus, Jesus, how come you and your disciples don't fast? This is the first time in scripture we realize Jesus forbid his disciples from fasting. Wow, Jim, at Cornerstone, we're really good at fasting. Jesus said, don't fast. <laughs> he says, as long as the bridegroom is with you, you don't need to do that. You can do that later. Because fasting in Jewish society at that time was only done for mourning the death of somebody or mourning sin. 
And Jesus says, you can do that later. I'm here still with you. And then he ends it all by saying this. And if you have new wine, you don't put it in an old wineskin. It'll burst. You need a new wineskin. And folks, that wine there is not the Holy Spirit. It's the harvest. Because the whole context is Matthew coming to faith. The harvest cannot be contained in old wineskins. We need new wineskins for end times harvest now. And there's a bunch of them. A lot of them pass us by. We're oblivious to them. And a few we accidentally fall into. And I just want to talk about one value of, of movement. It kind of, maybe the, the picture would be like the Olympics. I like to watch the Olympics. And the favorite event is the high jump, where they run fast and go over a bar. And the bar keeps getting raised and raised and raised till only one person can get over it. That's kind of what we've done in church. We've made it more tidy, more organized, more professional, to only a few people can get in the game and, and get over the top. We need to lower the bar so that everybody gets into end times harvest. Everybody has something to do in mission today. It kind of comes back to when Jesus was asked, well, there's movements. There's like 1,260 movements that are registered in the world today. I get together with all the guys that verify these every year. They're in China, they're in Africa, they're, they're in Asia. And movements are like Timothy. Paul said to Timothy, what I give you, you give it to somebody else who gives it to somebody else. From Paul to Timothy to another one to another one. One, two, three, four generations and beyond. If you got that, you can start saying a movement is happening. It's generational. It's out of control, but it's in God's control. So there's 1,260 of these. But who's leading these? Who's at the forefront of all these movements? No name, no fame people. Remember Matthew 25, they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, who's going to get into the kingdom? And he says, well, when you saw me naked, you gave me clothing. When you saw me hungry, you gave me food. When you saw me sick, you came and visited. When you saw me in jail, you came and saw me. And they said, Jesus, when did we see you hungry or naked or in jail or sick? And in verse 40, he says, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Sometimes we read that verse and we think it means have compassion for poor people. And that's in there, folks, but it, the, really the meaning is a whole lot deeper. Because Jesus is saying, you see them, you see me. You see me, you see them. I'm on the same level with the simple, poor, common people. And we remember Jesus saying, I'm going to be with the Father, and the Holy Spirit's coming, and those who believe will do my works and do greater works. Who's going to do the works of Jesus in this earth today? Common, everyday, poor people. Because Jesus is right there with them. And they're the ones leading movements. No name, no fame people. A few illustrations. I can only give them from our work in Papua. I don't tell stories from other people. Um, one, you know, one day Jesus is walking down the road and some children come, Jewish children come, and Jesus' bodyguard disciples say, hey, don't bother the teacher. And Jesus says, don't prevent them. They've got to come because the kingdom is for the children. Sometimes we think these are Jewish kids in white robes and clean cut. No, they're street kids. Their robes are tattered and dirty, and maybe they're pulling on Jesus' robe asking for money. And Jesus says, let the street kids come. They got a place in the kingdom too. When we moved to the city, we started taking in kids off the street, 10, 20, 30 sometimes with us. And we, till today, we keep doing that. It's not an orphanage, it's a family. 
because broken kids need a father image and a mother image more than a roof over their heads. And so we become that to all these kids who are runaways from home. They're being abused. In, our, in Papua, I hate to say this, 70% of all girls are raped before the age of 17 in the home often. And it's very, very sad. And so anybody that needs help and healing and safety, come, we'll take care of you. So we take all kinds of kids in. And they're not believers when they come in, but they soon start following Jesus. Because we take Matthew 10, 8, serious. Freely you've been given, freely give it away. So we all disciple together. It's not my wife and I doing it to them. They disciple each other. How does that work? Well, when one of the kids um, has a friend who's just fallen, he says, hey, can we take this kid in? And they have a house meeting. My wife and I don't attend. And they discuss, hey, can we get this kid? And they all have to be agreement. And the new kid comes through the door. Another one that's been with us for a month takes his hand and says, hey, as I'm trying to follow Jesus, you follow me. That's discipleship. You just have to be one step in front of the person you're discipling. People ask me, Jim, do you have a book on discipleship? Do you have a, 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 a manual? I used to. It was really thick. But then it got thinner and thinner and thinner, and I tossed it. Now I disciple with chickens. Do you have chickens in Singapore? Chicken rice. There must be chickens. So you, you can disciple if you have chickens. We have a chicken farm of 1,000 chickens. We feed chickens every morning together and every afternoon. We pray together, and we feed chickens together. And it's organic. We don't use any chemicals, and we pray over every chicken cage. So when we cut chickens and the kids take them out to sell at restaurants, they, tell, uh, they testify, ma'am, sir, this chicken meat tastes different than any chicken meat you've ever had. It doesn't have any chemicals in it. It has prayer in it. It will bring a blessing to your family. And people buy these holy chickens from our kids, and they hear their testimony of their changed life in Jesus. Street kids doing the work of the kingdom. Why not? Some of the boys out of gangs, now we've trained them as security guards. We have a security business guarding the airport and businesses and schools. They're guarding the places they used to break in and enter. And they'll see criminals coming down the road at midnight. It's their friends. They grab them, bring them into the guardhouse, do a Bible study with them. They're leading movements now. Why not? Okay, John 4 is another case. Jesus is going to Samaria, and he meets a woman at the well in the afternoon because she can't be with the other ladies because she's a prostitute. Jesus opens up her life, reveals everything, and she runs back to her village and brings everybody down to meet Jesus. And Jesus stays two more days, and a city, come, a town comes to Jesus because of a prostitute. I think if it happened 2,000 years ago, it can still happen today. Nobody is the object of ministry. Everybody's the subject of ministry. So 15 minutes from our house, there were for years a city of prostitutes, 300 that were exported from Jalandoli in Surabaya. They were brought over to Papua, and all the pubs and nightclubs support this little city of prostitution. Churches came and barricaded it one day. I came by that day, and I cried, because I said, if this gets closed down, these girls will just go someplace else and keep doing the same thing they've always done. Where are the churches that want to take these girls into their churches? So I got permission for my wife and girls from her cell group to start going in, room to room. What do they do? They take a little medicine, a little food, but what's the biggest felt need of a prostitute? Her whole self-image has been robbed of her. She's just a piece of merchandise for the enjoyment of other people. So my wife does the ministry of listening. 
because nobody listens to them. Giving back worth, giving them feeling that I'm important to God. And one by one, they give their lives to Jesus. It's pretty one girl, we'll call her City. She came to faith, one of the first ones that came to live with us. And afterwards, we helped buy out their contracts, and they come and they live with us. And she fell in love with a motorcycle taxi driver. And I did their marriage counseling. I love doing marriage counseling for prostitutes. That's my favorite activity. Because they always say, we've never heard this before. And we do our weddings on Sundays, always in the services. So she said, can I invite a few girls from the prostitution center to my wedding? Sure. Little did I imagine she's going to invite everyone. So on Sunday, 300 prostitutes and pimps are all on the front rows of our church. It was so dynamic. And as I'm preaching, I just imagine this is what Jesus was like 2,000 years ago. All the front rows were always filled with prostitutes and pimps. Another one, Jesus uh, is on the side of the lake in Galilee, and a, a guy who's naked, possessed by demons, who's been in the cemetery running around, the gathering demoniac, comes to him, and Jesus casts out all the demons into a herd of pigs that jump into the water and die, and this guy's delivered. And he immediately says, Jesus, can I join your church? Can I join your band of disciples? And Jesus says, no, go home. Oh, Jesus, don't you know how to disciple? <laughs> if he goes home, he's got to go by that cemetery again, and more demons are going to jump into him. <laughs> no, Jesus says, go home. And the next time we read about the area he's from, it's called Decapolis, the Ten Cities area. It's full of churches. Who planted those churches? This crazy guy. Imagine when he went home, clothed and in his right mind, and they said, what happened to you? And he said, I met Jesus. The power of a changed life, that testimony, they're the best evangelists. Disciple them in their context. Don't bring them here. Let them go out there, and you back them up to be an evangelist, to be a church planter there. One of my best friends, my best leaders, Demetrius was his name. We call him Demi. He grew up in the compound, a military complex is next to our house where military families all live with their family, the soldiers and their families. And Demi's father was a soldier. He would see his dad beat his mother every day. Every single day, his mom got beaten. She'd go into the hospital with broken bones, get back out, get beaten again, go back to the hospital. When Demi was 12 years old, one night his dad was asleep in the bed. He got a machete and he went in and he was going to slice the throat of his dad. At the last minute, God held his hand, and he didn't do it. The next day, his dad went out to the military complex, came back in the afternoon, in the front yard, fell over, died on the spot. They don't know if it was a heart attack or a stroke, but he was gone. Demi went on a path of rebellion for year after year because of this hurt in his life. He was in and out of jail. He was the town criminal. His siblings all came to faith. His mom came to faith in our ministry. They witnessed to him, but he wouldn't hear it. They said Demi's beyond help. One night, he was drinking with his buddies. He got pressure in his chest, and they rushed him to the emergency hospital, and en route, he cried out, God, save me. If I don't die, I'll turn my life over to you. And God gave Demi a second chance. He didn't die. And he turned his life over to Jesus. He turned 180 degrees overnight. The next day, I put a Bible in his hand. I said, Demi, you don't need to come to a Bible class. I want to show you how to do Discovery Bible study how to read the word, ask questions, and hear God speak to you. And when he speaks, you obey. And Demi, every day, would study the Bible. He'd obey. He grew rapidly. He became my top leader. One day, he came to me, and he said, Jim, 
You know, if we read the word and God speaks to us through the word, we have to obey within 48 hours. If we don't obey within two days, that truth leaves us. I thought about it. That's true. So that became the 48-hour rule in our ministry. All across Indonesia, everybody knows, if God speaks to you, you have 48 hours to obey. And we check on each other. Demi calls me periodically and he asks, Jim, what are you learning from God? How are you obeying? My disciple is asking me that. I need that. High accountability to obey in movements. There's another one, Zacchaeus in Jericho. He's the mafia boss. Everybody hates him. Jesus comes to town and he thinks maybe Jesus will pay some attention to me. So he goes up this tree. The mafia boss goes up a tree like a little kid. And Jesus comes by and he just sees him and says, hey, Zach, I want to come to your house and eat tonight. And he goes there and eats and Zacchaeus repents and gives back all the money he stole from people. Sometimes there's people like Zacchaeus in our city where we think they're beyond help. They're too wicked. Are there here in Singapore? In Papua, in our Tri-Cities area, in the, in the coast, in the cities, there's a gang called the Reggae Rasta Gang. These are boys, girls, some girls too, they have dreadlocks, they don't cut their hair for years, and they love reggae music, and they're the drug dealers. All the drugs are in their hands in the cities. They don't go to church. If they went to church, everybody in church would run out scared. So you got to do church for them. So I thought, how can I reach them? Well, they like music, reggae music, so I sponsored a music festival. Three days with secular bands, 30 bands, 10,000 kids in, in an open-air field, and I started getting a relationship. I want to see, could I win a band to Jesus, and their fans would become a church? And it was the boys there, the reggae boys, I asked, would you like to do a Bible study? Two of them said, yes, we want to. Why would they want to do a Bible study? They're boys on the street without a father, and they're looking for a father image. So that's what I become. So I said, when do you want to study the Bible? How about Saturday, noon? Because they can't get up any earlier than noon. Because Friday night, they're wasted. It takes a while to wake up on Saturday. So I said, okay, I'll come. I'll wait for you to wake up. So I'd go there, wait, and we'd do a Bible study week after week. After a few weeks, two of them got baptized. A few weeks later, I get a call from the leader of the gang. He says, Jim, we're going to have a leaders meeting. Would you attend? So I go there, and there's 20 of these leaders of this whole gang. They're smoking different stuff. I don't know what the contents were. And as we're talking, they say, we're, we're getting tired of being chased by the police. We're going to do a, a concert for the city, a free concert. And we're going to make it anti-drugs. I hear that. I look around. They're all users, and most of them are dealers. And they want to do an anti-drug free concert. In my heart, I'm smiling. Thank you, Jesus. It's like these little children trying to learn how to walk to Jesus. And there's emerging this church for a gang. Why not? Lastly, Jesus is in Jerusalem at the temple. And as you go out of the temple, there's a box for putting offerings in. And Jesus sees this little widow lady go put two coins in. And he calls his disciples. Hey, guys, it's, time to, it's school time. I want to teach you something. Look at that lady. She put in more than anybody else. But Jesus' disciples are kind of slow. They don't get it. So he has to realize, he has to say again, she put in everything she has. That's why she put in more than anybody. Our church in Papua is poor, about 1,000 kids, and they're all coming from bad backgrounds. They're getting jobs, and often they give back 100% of their paycheck back to Jesus. They're just so thankful they got a second chance at life. They really give. And one year, a few years ago, there were two pastors from the biggest church in Singapore that did a mission trip to Indonesia. 
And they started in Jakarta, and they ended in Papua on a Sunday. They came to our celebration with a thousand kids. They didn't have any part in the service. They just sat in the middle enjoying the atmosphere of these kids that loved Jesus with all their heart. At the end of the service, my leader, Franz is his name. Franz used to be a drunk on the street. Now he's the pastor. He says, we got two guests from Singapore. They probably had to pay a lot of money for a ticket to get here. We better help them. See, our people don't know where Singapore is. How many bins in the river till you get to Singapore? They don't know they're from a rich, maybe most wealthy church in Singapore. They just know we got to help. So he says, hey, guys, don't leave yet. Let's do an extra offering for our guests today. So all the kids came down front, put money in baskets, and he called these two Singaporean pastors to come receive the offering. As they came forward, he put the money in their hands, and they started crying. And they said, Jim, we've been on mission trips around the world. Everywhere we go, people know we're from a wealthy church in Singapore. They always put out their hands asking us for money. This is the first time we've been given an offering. And they're crying. And I answer, that's because our kids don't know they're poor. They don't know they're poor. Poor is not here. Poor is here. God is using poor people around the world to do incredible things. My, I was in Cuba one time doing a training for the underground church, way out in the middle of nowhere, and three leaders came at the, responded at the, at the end of the service. They said, we leaders have to respond before everybody else. I was so taken. And afterwards, I was talking to one, and one Roberto is his name. He said, yeah, I'm a church planter. I love to plant churches, but the doctors tell me I'm sick. I've got prostate cancer, and they've told me I have six months to live. So with every month I have, I promise God I will plant a new church in every month that God gives me. Folks, that was several years ago. Roberto is still alive today, and he's planting a church every month of his life. I believe God elongated his life because he lined up his purposes with God's purposes. Lastly, my hero, my number one hero, my kids. I believe my kids are going to do more than me. And Amy, who grew up in the jungle, helping mom in the clinic. At age 12, she could deliver breech babies. She could suture wounds from the tribal war. She could set broken bones at 12 years of age. So she went to medical school in Portland, Oregon to get the theory that would match the practice she already knew how to do. And she came back and runs our medical clinic for the poor. 300 patients every day. People's bodies get healed, their hearts get opened up to Jesus. And we had a pastor from abroad staying with us, and he wanted to talk to Amy privately. So they're in the kitchen talking. I'm in the next room eavesdropping. And he asked her this. He said, Amy, if you had a check and you could put in any amount of money, what would you dream? What would be your dream? She had never had anybody ask this of her. She would, and, but she answered back immediately. She said, I'm doing my dream. I'm not waiting for a lot of money. I'm not waiting for recognition from people from the outside. What God tells me to do, I'm doing it. I'm doing my dream. That's what I would say to you folks here in Singapore. Line up your dream with God's dream. Line up your vision with God's vision. It's the best time to be alive today. End times harvest is, is on our doorstep. It's happening faster and more furious than ever before. Let's be on the front lines with God. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this church cornerstone that has your heart for the world. Thank you for your investment in them. I pray you'll take it to the next level. 
take them to a, a, being thrust out into the communities here in Singapore, not waiting for tickets far, far away to do the mission here. And when you open the door, they will rush through it to wherever you take them. I pray you make this church a prototype that inspires others, do above and beyond all that they can ask or think. Keep them in the center of your will for end times harvest, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've just listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.